Deuteronomy chapter 23, and we'll begin there. I am on a, a tear to get through Deuteronomy before Christmas. This is Rick's goal. Um, we're going to do it. And, and then right at, at Christmas time, we're going to shift gears. And uh, we actually, having spent the last two, three years now in Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we are going to take a pause in the Older Testament. We're going to shift over and do a gospel um, beginning this next year. And I, I like to do that. I like As we go through the Bible, I like to pause every now and then and, and go grab a gospel. And then we get back and we'll go through some more. And then we'll grab another gospel. And that's, that's how we went through previously. So I haven't decided. I, I have, it's one of two gospels that I'm looking at and praying about. But um, we're going to be doing that. So let's, let's move through this. Right now, this is so important this morning. Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. No one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, I have to read that for second service too. You only have to hear it once, so I don't want to hear any complaining. <laughs> Verse two, no one of illegitimate birth shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of his descendants, even to the 10th generation, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the 10th generation, shall enter ever enter the assembly of the Lord because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out from Egypt and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Petor of Mesopotamia to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam because the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. You shall never seek their peace or their prosperity in all your days. You shall not detest an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not detest an Egyptian, because you were an alien in his land. The sons of the third generation who are born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. Father, we gather this morning as the assembly of the Lord. And it's pretty stirring to me to know that we can look back and hear Moses preach 3,500 years ago about the assembly of the Lord and begin to recognize you have had an intention for your assembled people for all this time. And you still desire for us to be assembled in your name. And so here we are, Lord, and we're here to listen and we're here to learn and we're here to be moved in spirit as you teach us today, in Jesus' name, amen. Some of you know this, it was originally a Dutch patriotic song. Can we hear a Yahoo for the Dutch? <laughs> in 1597, Adrianus Valerius added lyrics to a well-known folk tune that was uh, sung in, in the Netherlands, but this, this song was rewritten and this melody used to celebrate the freedom of the Netherlands from Spanish rule. In 1877, a Viennese choir master named Eduard Krimser, I hope you're getting all this down, wrote the now familiar tune. And in 1894, it was translated into English by Theodore Baker and it was called at that time, Prayer of Thanksgiving. Now I know we're still a couple and a half weeks off from Thanksgiving, but stay with me on this. After World War II, especially beginning in World War I, it began to be sung even in churches in America. By the time our country had gone through the Second World War, Americans began to identify 
personally with the song and it became a staple of the American hymnal. We gather together to ask the Lord's blessing. He chastens and hastens his will to make known. The wicked oppressing now cease from distressing. Sing praises to his name. He forgets not his own. Beside us to guide us, our God with us joining, ordaining, maintaining his kingdom divine. So from the beginning, the fight we were winning. Thou, Lord, were at our side, all glory be thine. We all do extol thee, thou leader triumphant, and pray that thou still our defender will be. Let thy congregation escape tribulation. Thy name be ever praised, O Lord, make us free. We gather together. It, it, it actually became a soundtrack for the American portrait of, of Thanksgiving. Family gathered around the table, unspoiled by dysfunctional family turkeys <laughs> or, or by heated political debate. You know what I'm talking about, the elephant or the donkey in the living room, depending. But the centerpiece of the hymn is neither turkeys nor families. We gather together to ask the Lord's blessing. The focus is the Lord. He is what makes the gathering different. You can gather as families. You can gather with friends. People can assemble all over the world for all various reasons. But when we gather together to ask the Lord's blessing, it is a completely different thing. It is not just that we need each other that we assemble in these last days. It is that we need the Lord. And so the Hebrew pastor said in Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And I've told you before, it really stirred me up to realize that we were told to assemble as we see the day drawing near. That in these last days, regardless of circumstances or what's happening in the world around us, we are called as God's people to be the Lord's assembly, to assemble in the name of Jesus. But, pause and think about this. What makes us think we have the right to assemble? I know what you would say. You would say, well, the Constitution we have the right of assembly, freedom of assembly, right? Now listen, understand me that assembling together in the name of the Lord is absolutely an imperative. But if you say it's a right, you gotta ask the question, well, what about the persecuted church that does not have the right to assemble but assembles anyway? What about Christians for 2,000 years who have been oppressed and told that their assemblies were the mark of death and yet they assembled anyway. It is not the right of assembly that allows us to meet. What right do we have? Listen, assembling in the name of the Lord is a privilege and it is by invitation. It is not by right. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 15, first time this word is used in the New Testament, in the Bible, he said, I will build my church. So really, it's not my church, it's not your church, it's his church. And he's the builder, he's the one who will do it. That word church even, built in to what we call what we're doing, what we call ourselves the church. Ecclesia is the called assembly. 
The assembly of the called, that assumes, that assumes an invitation. If I'm called to assemble, I have been invited to assemble. But if, if I presume that my gathering is a protected right, then I, I, I risk assembling with little or no thought to his holy presence. That he is why we have gathered today. He is the point. This is for and about Jesus, not me, not you. If we gather together to ask the Lord's blessing, don't you think we should start by acknowledging and blessing the Lord around whom we gather? Let's start with him. Let's look to him. Let's think about him. Solomon took the assembly so seriously that when he had the temple built in Jerusalem, the steps going up to the temple were set at different heights so that people would have to think about what they were doing. You couldn't just go jogging right on up into the temple. If you did that, you'd fall flat on your face. You had to think about, wait a minute, that's right, we're going up to the temple of the Lord. Ecclesiastes 5 refers to this. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. What's the sacrifice of fools? Someone going up for themselves rather than for the Lord. What we find, and and it's perhaps a bit surprising in Deuteronomy 23, is we find a unique set of guidelines for gathering or you could say conditions for congregating. These are things the Lord says, inclusions and exclusions from the assembly of the Lord. Because entry into this assembly, even here this morning, is not a foregone conclusion. It is not a right. It's a privilege and an invitation. But let me start with this. What exactly was the assembly of the Lord? Because Moses says it six times in these eight verses says it two other times in the Hebrew scriptures. For a total of eight times, he uses this phrase, assembly of the Lord. Now, up until now, the phrase assembly has been used for the children of Israel a number of times. It's kahal, Q-E-H-A-L, if you wanna transliterate that. Kahal in the Hebrew, which means a company, a congregation, or a convocation. Anybody can have a kahal. Anybody can gather as an assembly for any reason. But this is different. This specific phrase of the assembly of the Lord. See, before this, it's used throughout Deuteronomy, kahal, that single word, to talk about the people gathered back at Mount Sinai. They were the kahal, the assembly around the mountain. And they gathered together there at Mount Horeb. But this phrase, kahal Yahweh, is only used, as I said, here in bulk and then in two other places. Call Yahweh. It specifically, the assembly of the Lord specifically means Israel as a worshiping community. So, so you need to get that down. The exclusions here and the inclusions are of people allowed or disallowed from gathering for the purpose of worshiping God. Gathering, assembling around the Lord for worship, for offering sacrifices to the Lord. As Keith Green once said, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger, right? And I can show up all I want. We can gather. You know, we can place membership. 
with certain denominational uh, groups. We can identify it by name. We can get our, our names written into the church directory or on an email group. Doesn't mean I'm part of the worshiping assembly. It doesn't mean I'm part of the congregation of the Lord, the call Yahweh, the assembly of the Lord. See, Jesus said an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks as his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, John 4, 23 and 24. And then we see this phrase, the kahal Yahweh, the assembly of the Lord. David is the last one to use it. First Chronicles 28, verse eight. David, in his final words, to the assembly, the covenant community of Israel, he said, so now in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord, the Kahal Yahweh, and in the hearing of our God, observe and seek after all the commandments of the Lord your God so that you may possess the good land and bequeath it to your sons after you forever. Bible commentator Peter Craigie said to enter the assembly of the Lord would indicate a person who became a true Israelite and who therefore shared in the worship of the Lord. The expression is somewhat narrower in its intent than Israel proper, taken as a whole. For there would be resident aliens and others who, though part of the community, were nevertheless not full members of it. People living in Israel, people who were a part of Israel, but were not necessarily a part of the Kahal Yahweh, the assembly of the Lord. So Moses here in Deuteronomy 23 is talking about those who gather together in the name of Yahweh to worship and bless Yahweh. You need to understand that because now we get to certain exclusions from the assembly. This is not just the assembly at large. This is the assembly around the Lord. The Hebrew language, by the way, is absolute. The way it's written out in English, you would miss this, but it's literally may not enter. The, the people that are mentioned here that are excluded may not enter. It's like saying, sorry, but you're not welcome at church. Can you imagine saying that? Hey, I'd love to invite you to my church, but you're just not welcome. Well, that's evangelistic. But that's in essence what Moses is saying here. There are some who are not welcome, who cannot, when you gather at the tabernacle, at the temple, to offer up sacrifices of worship and praise to the Lord. When you gather together in the name of the Lord, these cannot be there. These are not welcome, excluded. And verse one again, no one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. And that is either accidentally or intentionally. Why would any man intentionally do that? That's my question. Why would anybody want to? Well, eunuchs, who often didn't have the choice, that was typical in the ancient Middle East and in ancient places, you know, that the, the, if you were serving in the king's court, that they would be castrated or they would be made eunuchs so that they could serve and the king wouldn't worry about the eunuch messing around with his many wives. It's all very sordid. So there were eunuchs who were made that way. There were also male temple prostitutes who had this done. You see, sex change operations are as ancient 
as, as the ancient times. All the way back to the days of Moses and prior, male temple prostitutes who would literally be emasculated would have their male organ completely removed and then they would dress as women for pagan practices. This is not a new thing. And by the way, it's something dressing as women that was also forbidden to God's holy people, Deuteronomy 22, verse five. And we talked about that the other evening. And I read that and I think about that and realize this is seeming less, <laughs> less distant and bizarre. And I gave you uh, two spiritually practical reasons why God would make this absolute exclusion. I mean, what about the male temple prostitute of a, of a Canaanite religion who then changes his mind and, and decides he wants to be a part of Israel and he wants to enter the assembly of the Lord and the Lord says, no, can't join, can't be a part of this. Why is this so serious and why would God call this out? A couple of starting points for you. This exclusion, number one, dealt with that area that received, number one, the seal of circumcision. The seal of circumcision. It is the singular mark of the Abrahamic covenant. For a man to be circumcised, a man could not enter the assembly of the Lord without the mark of circumcision, without the seal of the Abrahamic covenant. What about women? Women of Israel were included through fathers and husbands and if necessary, brothers. They were born into the covenant community. By the way, through that same region, through that same area, was involved in the, you know, in the seeding of a woman who was then born and part of the covenant community. So women were accepted. They were marked, so to speak, as well, through father, through the dad. But that mark was vital. It was critical to the covenant community. Interesting that even for this statement, grace is still available. Grace would ultimately supersede the exclusion over in Isaiah chapter 56, just listen to this. Isaiah 56 verse three, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant to them, I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name. You know what that is, by the way? A memorial is a yod and a name, Vashem. Yod Vashem. That's where the word, the phrase Yod Vashem, the Holocaust memorial, comes from in Jerusalem. I will give within my walls a Yod Vashem, better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. And so the Lord now, he turns around through Isaiah the prophet and says, listen, there is this exclusion, but wherever there's an exclusion with God, there is grace. There is grace. By the way, as promised, we meet an Ethiopian eunuch. Remember in Acts chapter eight, a man who is seeking and pursuing the Lord, a man who by all Torah law, by all rights, should not enter the assembly but a man who was returning from having worshiped in Jerusalem. How did he do that? I don't know that he was even allowed in the temple. 
But this is a man who was worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And as he's making his way home, he's reading the book of Isaiah. And you know the story. God sends Philip to meet him on the Ethiopian road, on the Gaza road, as he's heading back south, and he stops him. And the Ethiopian says, can you help me understand this? And Philip hops up in the chariot, and they have Bible study right there. And the Ethiopian says, hey, what keeps me from getting baptized? And Philip says, let's find some water now. And it's an amazing story about a man who should be cut off, but is now included by the grace of God. So keep that in mind also. Where there are exclusions, there is also grace. Grace is the only way to supersede any exclusion. By the way, do we have a seal that marks our assembly? We do, don't we? 2 Corinthians 1.21, he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Rather, rather than a, a mark on the male organ, there is a seal on the heart. Now, of every believer, a seal that allows us entry into the assembly of the Lord, a seal that shows who we are spiritually, Ephesians 1.13, in Christ you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, also having believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And as we enter then together the assembly of the saints of the Lord, we enter with this very seal, the seal of the Spirit. It's easy to forget that sometimes. You know, and again, saunter in with, with all rights and privileges. I'm here because I'm just part of this deal. You're part of this deal because you've been sealed. Because the spirit is upon you. And as we come together, listen, this is, this is vital. See, Paul says, Ephesians 4.30, he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Why does that apply. See, we can grieve the Spirit, but grieving the Spirit happens in the assembly. When the people are gathered, that's the time and place when we can grieve the very Spirit who has sealed us, because Paul goes on to say, Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. How do we avoid grieving the very spirit who seals us for salvation? We love each other. We love each other. We put away bitterness. We put away unforgiveness. We put away clamor and slander and all these other things, and we turn and forgive each other just as God in Christ has forgiven us. The seal affects the assembly. You gotta have the seal truly to be a part of the assembly of the Lord. And once you have that seal, it affects how we interact, how we work together, how we live together, how we assemble in the name of the Lord. The seal is also closely related to the other concern with this exclusion in Deuteronomy 23, verse one. Another concern with the same region, not only the seal, the seal of the assembly, but also, secondly, the sight of, of reproduction. This is the site of reproduction. God values life. That's one of the things that was so incredibly pagan about the, the male cult prostitutes and the, and the way that the, 
the, the heathens did their own, you know, pagan godless worship. It was that they were cutting off the very source of life. That God, God values life. God created us saying in the very beginning with Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1:28. God values life. He wants his people to be alive and he wants a fruitful people for his assembly. Now you can look back and say, well, there's a very practical reason in Israel back in the, in the ancient times, back with Moses, that he wanted the people to continue to grow and spread out and be a large and numerous people so that they could take the land and, and be solid together. But this fruitfulness is vital for you and for me as well. When we assemble together, listen, brothers and sisters, God wants a people who are fruitful. God desires an assembly who can reproduce. Reproduce. I'm talking about evangelism. Oh, I'm not an evangelist. Well, you are an evangelist. If you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are an evangelist. You are a gospel-bearing person. And you may not have the, the same calling as someone who has the gift of evangelism. You may not be the person talking, walking up to every person in the coffee shop to talk about Jesus. But I'll tell you what, if God nudges you, you go. If God says, tell this person, you tell them. And it actually is a great practice and exercise for all of us to think about being a little more evangelical, not as voters, but as people a fruitful people, you still might say, yeah, man, that's just so outside my comfort zone. There's a way to do this. There's a way to be a fruitful people in the assembly of the Lord or as the assembly of the Lord, fruitful here, fruitful there. A way to do that, Jesus said, John 15, verse four, abide in me. This is the key to evangelism. It's not taking a class. It's not a study course. I, years ago, I did evangelism explosion. You know, and it's an actual course you go through to learn how to evangelize people. It made me so uncomfortable because it was like learning sales. And if you've gone through and you like evangelism explosion, I'm not saying it's bad. Hey, any way we can get the gospel out to people, I'm good with. But Jesus says, here's the key to evangelism. You wanna know how to tell your neighbor, your friends, your family about me? Abide in me. Abide in me, John 15, four. And I in you. And he goes on, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The idea is not just to go out there and make converts to your particular religion or denomination. The idea is that as you abide in Christ, people will see Christ in you and want that. Abide in me, Jesus says. So this whole idea of fruitfulness, of, of reproduction, listen, there, there is the fruit of the Spirit who seals us, right? And we've talked a lot about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and all the rest. And how that's in us and among us and how we treat each other and how we are together, the fruit of the Spirit, be fruitful. But there's also the fruit of abiding in the Spirit. And that is a fruit of lives. That's more birth to the assembly. The Lord wanted his people, Israel, to be reproductive as an assembly. 
Therefore, no one who was emasculated could be part of the assembly because he would no longer be reproductive in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense, the Lord would say to you and to me, I want you to be reproductive. Yes, I want you to be inviting friends and family to church. Yeah, but they won't come because of COVID. Keep asking. I want you to be inviting people into your relationship with Jesus, talking about Jesus, letting them know about Jesus, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there will be more birth in the assembly of the Lord. So the seal of circumcision, the sight of reproduction, and then in verse two, He goes on and says, no one of illegitimate birth shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of his descendants, even to the 10th generation, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. No one of illegitimate birth. Now, now hold on to that because we have all kinds of definitions of illegitimate birth. This one's pretty specific. This kind of illegitimate birth, birth, in fact, the word that we translate illegitimate birth is mamzer. And Mamzer is only used two times in the entire Bible, right here and in one other place. It's an obscure word, it's an old ancient word, but it specifically refers to a child born of incest, cult prostitution, or mixed birth. Again, it's only used two times in the Bible for incest, cult prostitution, or mixed birth. And again, you might say, well, that's not fair. The child didn't have any say in that. Well, pay attention to this. In Deuteronomy 23, verse two, God does say, no mamzer shall enter the assembly of the Lord. The other place the word is used is Zechariah chapter nine, verse six, which says, a mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. A mongrel race, a mamzer, a mamzer. Specifically, in the ancient world, this word, this word we believe was used to speak of those born of a sinful union that is of cult prostitution or incest. So a child born of incest, a child born out of cult prostitution, in that case, the entire family line was barred from the assembly of the Lord until the 10th generation. 10 generations had to go by where someone could not enter that assembly, and this has real-time application in the Bible, which amazes me. Ever hear of Judah and Tamar? Story back in Genesis 38, a story that is a sordid, twisted tale of dysfunction and incestual family experience. Judah goes out and he gets Tamar as a wife for his son Ur. Ur was so evil, God took him out. Doesn't happen often where the Bible tells you he was so evil, God just said, you're done. Well, that happened with Ur. Ur's younger brother, Onan, goes in and takes Tamar as his wife, but he will not produce children with her. He'll sleep with her. He'll get all the pleasure out of her he can, but he will not produce children with her. And you can read Genesis 38 for the sordid details on that. He was so evil, the Lord took him out. So now you have this woman, Tamar, and her first husband and her second husband, both are killed by the Lord. Now, Judah has a third son, but he's a youngster, and so Judah tells Tamar, go back and stay with your family until my youngest, Shelah, uh, he grows up, and then you can be married to him. But Tamar began to realize as days turned into months turned into years, 
she was being hung out to dry. This was significant in ancient times because at that time, for a woman to be left without husband was to be left without hope, left without any kind of future. She's waiting and waiting, nothing's happening. She's not hearing from Judah. Finally, she realizes she's been cut off from the family, and so she devises a plan. Judah's wife dies, and Judah, in the story, goes up to check with his sheep shearers, and on his way up, it tells us that he turned aside at the gate to a harlot. Turns out the harlot in disguise was Tamar, and Judah didn't know this. And so, and I, I, I'm not gonna tell you the whole story. You should read it. It's an amazing story. Maybe a nice bedtime story before you go to sleep tonight. <laughs> but Tamar gets pregnant by Judah, her father-in-law. And she gives birth to twins. Perez, whose name means breach, he fights his way out first. And then there's Zira, whose name means seed. She has Perez and Zira, two illegitimate sons. Two sons born of incestual wedlock. Because of this, note, the line of Judah would have been, would have, was literally unable to enter the assembly of the Lord until the 10th generation. Well, what does that mean? Track it through. Matthew chapter one, verse three, giving us a genealogy, says Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nachshon. Nachshon, the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, Rahab. And Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David, who was the first person in the line of Judah to be able to enter the assembly of the Lord. King David. God's choice for the king. And by the way, I fully believe that Saul was not God's choice. Though Saul was the first king of Israel, Saul of the tribe of Benjamin, God made it clear that Judah would be the ruling tribe. But no one in Judah could be king over Israel until David. I think God had his eyes on David from the very beginning. Watching, that was the man after my own heart, David. That was, he was God's choice. And 10 generations would go by and David would be the first one who could actually enter the assembly of the Lord. He was always God's choice. And that is so significant because of course David's lineage belonged to Jesus. A lineage that also includes not just one, Tamar, but four tainted women. Four women who had no right, no business, who all should have been excluded from the genealogy of Messiah, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. None of these should have been allowed to enter the assembly of the Lord, but all four became legitimate daughters in the line of Christ. It's so beautiful. It's so intentional. Connected to Jesus, they became legitimate. And that is amazing grace. And that should tell us something, number three, about the security of salvation, which we've talked about. We talked about that a lot last week, the security of salvation, seal 
of circumcision, the site of reproduction, and now we have this exclusion, but it should point us to the security of salvation. Here it is, listen, there are people going to church every Sunday who think they're saved. There are people who think they're good to go with God. People who we might call illegitimate Christians. People who say, now I'm, I'm not part of that group that's born again. They're all kind of nutty. I'm a Christian, but I'm not a born again Christian. You know what? If you're not born again, you're not a Christian. In fact, even the phrase born again Christian is superfluous. A Christian is born again, and someone who's born again is a Christian. There is no difference. But you can't be a Christian and not be born again. Well, how can you say that? Because Jesus said that. John chapter three, verse one, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher for no one can do these signs unless you, that you do unless God is with him. And it comes off to us like a statement, but it's really a leading question. Nick is saying, who are you? What's going on here? He meets him at night. Nick at night. We can't use that much longer because people are gonna forget what that even was. But, but, but he comes to him and he says, what's going on here? Jesus reads him perfectly and says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Exclusion. There is only one way to be included in the kingdom company, the assembly of the saints, and that is you must be born again. Nicodemus quizzically uh, says to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? So Nick kind of gets, gets the humor in this, but then Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one's born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. And we're right back to the seal of the spirit. The seal of the Spirit is the seal of our salvation. Why? Because you have been born of the Spirit. You've been born again, therefore you now are part of the assembly. You have the security of your salvation. We only enter the assembly of the saints by being born again. Then, no matter what our birth was prior, we now go from illegitimate to legitimate. We become children of the Lord. Born again children of Jesus around whom we gather to bless. Born again, that's our security. It's our security eternally. That John chapter one, verse 12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, that is born again. Now, if you're maybe a long-time church attender, you've considered yourself a Christian, but you thought those born-again people were a little whacked out, stop and think, have I ever been born again? Now, that can be a little unsettling. Someone can say, well, I know the Bible. I'm church-going. I, I, I've done all the things I'm supposed to do, haven't I? Have you asked Jesus into your heart? Have you been born again by faith in Jesus Christ. This is a very, very simple process and yet profound in its result. Have you said, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. 
Lord, I give my heart, my life to you. That's being born again, born of the Spirit. Lord, take me now, make me yours. Trusting your life to him, born again, not of blood, that is not of your ancestral background. Well, my family have always been Methodist, therefore I'm gonna be a Methodist to the day I die and right on into eternity there. Listen, no one's gonna be called Methodist in heaven. There will be plenty of Methodists in heaven, don't get me wrong. And Baptists and Pentecostals. I think there's gonna be a lot of Pentecostals having some fun up there. (laughs) But we're not gonna be called by any name other than Jesus when we're with him. Born again. All other birth, and I'm talking spiritually here, is illegitimate and insecure. All other birth. Verse three. No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the 10th generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. Now you may read that and go, oh, well, let's let's do 10 generations from Ammon and Moab and find out who can enter. No, this is said differently. They shall never enter, even to the 10th generation. But then it, it inserts the word ever there. And in the Hebrew construction, what this means is no Ammonite or Moabite can ever be part of the, the assembly. Ever, even to the 10th generation, but way beyond. It it, it is an impossibility. You cannot, if you are of Ammon or Moab, which is Jordan today, you cannot enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, the Ammonites and the Moabites already were offspring of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his two daughters. You remember that story? As they fled from burning Sodom and Gomorrah up into the caves, The two daughters decided they needed to have offspring. They got their father drunk and the oldest went in and slept with him and got pregnant. And then the youngest the next time went in and slept with him and got pregnant. And both of them bore kids, Ammon and Moab. And the Ammonites and the Moabites already have that incestual incestual background, but it goes far beyond that. That's not the issue that God calls out here. It's not because of that incestuous relationship in the past. No, it's because the Ammonites and the Moabites were opposed to the assembly. This is number four in your list if you're keeping track, the sin of opposition. We might put it this way. No one who is set against the assembly of the Lord can enter the assembly of the Lord. Well, that makes sense, right? Hey, if you're opposed to God's assembly, you will not enter God's assembly. All right, well, that's kind of obvious, isn't it? Listen, it's not that people who are opposed to the church will not enter the church and not because the saints are closed or cold or intolerant or unwelcoming. See, that's the lie out there in the world that if, if your life is somewhat of a mess, those Christians, they won't welcome you in. I've never known more welcoming people than the saints of God. People who want to see hurting, lost, broken, torn up, beat up people, saved and tended and loved and healed. That's what we're supposed to be about. But they're not unwelcome because the saints wouldn't welcome them. They're unwelcome because a a heart that is hard enough to curse the assembly of the Lord will never accept the invitation. The Ammonites and the Moabites, they wouldn't accept anyway but they are opposed to God's people. 
stood opposed to God's people because they did not meet you, note that verse four, with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Petor of Mesopotamia to curse you. They stand against you. Therefore, they cannot be part of you. Listen, everyone, as I just said, is welcome to come check out the assembly. Everybody's welcome to come to church, regardless of what their current lifestyle even is. They're welcome to come check out the church, to consider how we take communion together, to hear about the grace and truth of Jesus Christ in God's word. But if their motive is to come and curse this people, that welcome can and will be rescinded. I can, I can even lay that out. It's kind of a standard here at the bridge. If someone wants to be here, regardless of their lifestyle, to see what is really going on with this Jesus, they're welcome. If someone wants to be here to stir up sin and contention, that's not welcome. If someone wants to be here and remain in an opposed lifestyle to the righteousness of God, that's not welcome. It's kind of like going to the dentist, is what C.S. Lewis says. I would go to the dentist. I didn't want to go to the dentist because I knew, I knew if I went to the dentist, he wouldn't just deal with the toothache. He would deal with all the rest of my teeth as well. And that's what God does. He invites us in. He receives us as we are, but he changes us to be as he is. It's sanctification. So anyone's welcome, but if the motive of coming is to curse the assembly, the welcome is over. Now, what's interesting is even with Ammon and Moab, we continue to see grace seep in and around all of Torah law. As Jeremiah 48, 47, the Lord says, yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days. Or Daniel eleven forty one, 41, Antichrist, he says, will enter the beautiful land, Israel, Jerusalem, and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. There's something really interesting, by the way, that happens at the last of the last days. During this tribulation season, as the Antichrist is marching across the world and trying to conquer and destroy, that the Ammonites and the Moabites apparently, and I don't have time to really get into it, but you can read it in Isaiah 6. The Ammonites and the Moabites seem to be the ones who welcome at that point Israel as Israel flees the Antichrist and God will bless them for it. Well, that's a, a different sermon for another time. But even with Ammon and Moab, it doesn't mean, though they'll be rescued, though fortune's restored, it doesn't necessarily mean they will enter the worshiping assembly of the Lord. That depends on one thing. It depends on the heart. Wasn't Ruth a Moabitess? Ruth. She was a daughter of, of Moab, according to this law, Ruth should never be able to enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, a couple of things with this, when you read that, no Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly, shall enter is in the, it's in the masculine third person. So you can say, well, then it's dealing with no Ammonite or Moabite male. That, that's what's being said there. And that, that's, a little, that's a little weak. The truth is, it's not just the Hebrew construction, it's the heart of Ruth. The heart of Ruth, who said to Naomi, Ruth chapter one, verse 16, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, 
I will go. Where you lodge, I will go. And she says this, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And in that moment, Ruth the Moabitess had a heart change that God could then bless and grace with acceptance into the assembly. It's a heart issue. It's the heart of faith that God welcomes, which is why Ruth is included in the assembly of Yahweh and the genealogy, as we just saw, of King David and even finally of Christ Jesus himself. Ruth's name is right there. In the Matthew rendering, the Matthew genealogy and in the Luke genealogy, Ruth's name is right there. The daughter who should have been outcast but who is now received because of the heart, because she had faith in the Lord. Of course, then you see this Balaam. That was the other problem with the Ammonites and the Moabites. They didn't just reject the people of God. They called Balaam to curse him. And we recently saw the, the whole story of Balaam. Balaam was a bad guy in the Bible. His story starts in a quizzical, comical way in that his donkey obviously was smarter than he was. But it goes far beyond that. This was an evil guy who for his own sordid gain tried to take down God's people who sought to be a prophet leveling curses over the people of Israel. And the Bible calls him out, names him in the New Testament three different times. Second Peter chapter two, verse 15, forsaking the right way, they've gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. That's doing it for the money, man. That was Balaam's bad heart. Or Jude 11, speaking also of these same people, says, for pay, they've rushed, rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. Balaam, who thought he could trick his way around the Lord. And Jesus said in Revelation chapter two, verse 14, to the church at Pergamos, he said, I have a few things against you because you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and commit acts of immorality. You know the story. See, in Numbers 22, 23, and 24, Balaam tried three times to curse Israel. And every time he tried to curse, the only thing that came out of his mouth was blessing. Blessing after blessing and and in that, a mysterious and marvelous prophecy of Jesus. Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. A prophecy of Jesus Christ. Not only in his first coming as a star would rise, but in his second coming as he would come to conquer. And Balaam spoke that. But see, Balaam didn't end there. He tried to curse and the curses never work. You can never curse the people of God. So what did he do instead? He taught the Moabites how to undermine the people of God. Invite them to your feasts. Have them come to your pagan festivals. Have them eat things sacrificed to your idols and then allure them with your women and intermarry. And it's interesting, Jesus calls that out in Revelation chapter two, talking to Pergamus, and Pergamus means objectionable marriage. The church that was a mixture. And that's what Balaam counseled, mix it all in. I love verse five in 
Deuteronomy 23, nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. Don't ever worry about those who reject the assembly of the Lord. So there's a lot of that in the world today, and there are some in the church, Christians, who are a little unnerved because we see how the church is being viewed in our culture, in the media. We see the negatives that are being poured on all the time on people who are just quiet, God-fearing Christians, and we can be a little, you know, thrown off our game, a little worried by all that we're seeing. These who reject the assembly, who are cursing the assembly of the Lord, don't listen to it. Don't listen to the cursing. Don't buy into it. Don't, don't invite their dissension. Beware of the error and the way and the false teachings of the Balaams who stand in opposition to the truth, but recognize that we have the blessing of the Lord. We have the blessing of the Lord. Who, who can counter that? There is no curse that can replace the blessing of the Lord for those who are gathered in the name of the Lord. In verse six, he says, you shall never seek their peace or their prosperity in all your days. That's a good word. We don't need the peace that the world offers. We don't need the prosperity of those who are set against the assembly of the saints of the Lord. We have his blessing. What do we need their peace or their prosperity for? Jesus said, my peace I give you, my peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. You want peace with the world? You want the peace of the world? It doesn't last. It's a fleeting thing. Jesus says, you have my peace. And their prosperity, man, don't chase down prosperity in this world. We have the blessing of the Lord. Wouldn't you rather know that your income, that, that what you have is a blessing of God rather than the work of your hands? It's nothing but pride to say, I earned this, I worked for this. No, you didn't. You have because God blessed you. By the way, that blessing even extends beyond Christians because God says, I bring the rain on the just and the unjust. I cause the sun to shine on, on those who are good and evil. Everybody is blessed <laughs> by the Lord in this amazing creation. But we have the blessing, oh, the Bible says, the blessing that makes truly rich. Love that verse. Proverbs 10, it is the blessing of the Lord that makes truly rich. He adds no sorrow to it. And that phrase, no sorrow, also means no strenuous work. You don't work for the blessing. And we'll talk more about that blessing perhaps next week. Well, in verse seven, he goes on, finally he says, you shall not detest. Okay, so we've now had three exclusions and now we get to the fourth line item in verse seven and it's you shall not detest an Edomite, he's your brother. You shall not detest an Egyptian because you were an alien in his land and the sons of the third generation, that is the grandkids of the Edomites and the, and the Egyptians may enter the assembly of the Lord. This is inclusion, but it's really interesting to me because God draws a line. You've got Ammon and Moab, they're, they're excluded, but now you've got Edom. Edom is southern Jordan and Egypt, and they can enter the assembly. At least their grandkids can. Why their grandkids? Well, you give it a little time. Don't lay hands on anybody too quickly. Give it a little time to be sure that they really want to be part of this assembly. 
but the grandkids can now enter. That's really interesting to me. They have a door of invitation, a door of inclusion. Now watch this. Stay with me just a moment longer here. The word that is used here, you shall not detest. You shall not detest. Either the Edomite, it's used twice, or detest the Egyptian. This Hebrew word is interesting. It's tetaab. And it's interesting not because of the word itself, but because the word detest, it also means abhor or abominate. You shall not consider an abomination, the Edomite or the Egyptian. You shall not detest or abhor them. But what's interesting about the word, it's the exact antonym in the Hebrew of the word chesed, grace, grace. You shall not detest. You shall not abhor. In other words, what should we do? You show them grace. That's the fifth and final point. The show of grace. To the Edomites, Moses says to Israel. To the Egyptians, to them you show grace. Why? The Edomites may have refused Israel the right to pass through the land. They did. They were a little kind of jerks about it, but God says, cut them some slack. They're your, they're your family. The Edomites who came from Esau, brother of Jacob. So these are your second cousins here. So you show them grace. Well, what about Egypt? What about Egypt? Hey, slavery or not, Egypt did give the right of resident alien status to the Israelites for 400 years. It was because of Egypt that Israel was preserved. Well, it was Joseph, and it was God's hand through Joseph in Egypt. But the Egyptians allowed this people group to come and live and prosper and grow and become quite large there in Egypt. Yes, the pharaohs ultimately imposed brutal slavery, but Egypt was Israel's host. Keep that, think, think about that with me. Egypt was Israel's host. Now, we often talk about Egypt as a picture of the world in the Bible, right? You go down to Egypt, you go up to Jerusalem. <laughs> you go down to the world. And so there's a negative tint on the idea of Egypt as presented in the scriptures, Egypt as the world. But hey, guess what? Right now, the world is our host. And we're not to be of the world. We're not to live like the world. We're not to love the things of the world, but the world is our host. So what do we do? We don't abhor it. We show grace. We show the world grace. Grace. John 17. Jesus is praying and he says in verse 13, Father, now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them, and he's talking about his disciples, I've given them your word. And the world has hated them because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. But then Jesus says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then Jesus says this, as you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, through the, the immediate disciples, those who would believe through their world. Hey, their word, that's us. We believe through their word. 
So now he's talking about us, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us. Why? So we can close our doors, huddle, and be happy together. No, that's not what he prayed. That they will be one so that the world may believe that you sent me. You show grace. The show of grace to the world, to the Egypt, to the, to the Edomites. You show, you proclaim grace. And so back in Deuteronomy 23, the, the assembly hears this. Wow, the grandkids of the Edomite, the Egyptians, by genuine faith and desire now have the right to be full members of the assembly, the worshiping assembly of the Lord, even if that's the background. We see the grace that is poured out for all of these others, though the law declares this is the way it must be, grace, grace washes over the law. And again, with the Edomites, with the Egyptians, as with all the rest, Ruth and the others, admission into the assembly ultimately rests on faith, not on bloodline. On faith, not on the background of the flesh. Having the seal of the Spirit. Being fruitful and reproductive for the kingdom, showing grace in this world. And there's no place for opposition to the truth in this gathering. Everybody is welcome to hear the truth, but if you come here standing opposed to the truth, rejecting the truth, trying to undermine the truth, bye-bye. That is not welcome here. Inclusions and exclusions. I'm gonna close with one final passage, and you can just listen to this. This made me think about what Jesus said about the inclusivity of the kingdom and, and the assembly of the saints. And he told this parable. In Matthew 22, he said, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited. Behold, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their own way and one to his own farm and another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. And it's obvious as Jesus is unfolding this parable, those who have a discerning ear, they know what he's saying. He's talking about the invitation given to God's assembly, Israel. And he's talking about the servants being the prophets going out saying, come to the feast and being rejected and being killed as prophets were across the generations. And then Jesus says, but the king was enraged and he sent his armies and he destroyed those murderers and he set their city on fire. And that happened, didn't it? 586 BC, AD 70, a repeat of the same thing. And then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited we're not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways and as many as you find, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. That's church on a Sunday morning, by the way. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests for all the inclusivity. And, and that's, I said this last week, I'll say it again. There is no more inclusive faith in the world than Christianity. This is the one that does say, come just as you are. 
This is the one that says the doors are open. No matter how messed up your life may be, come and be saved. Come and be cleansed by the love of Jesus Christ. He's just waiting open arm for you, totally inclusive. And yet, Jesus says, the king came in to look over the dinner guests and he saw a man who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. The king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, we might say many are invited, but few are chosen. I remember the first time I heard that being a little uh, unsettled by it. Many are called, few are chosen. What if that's me? What if I'm one of the many called but not chosen? What if I'm not part of the few? How, how do I know? The invitation, as I said, is all-inclusive, but here's the deal. The wedding attire is wholly exclusive. You gotta have the right clothes on. You gotta wear the right attire, which is what? Revelation 19, verse seven. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. I'm born again, but I'm not born again to stay naked. I'm born again, but I'm not left writhing on a cold, hard metal table in a hospital. Born again and then robed in, as Isaiah says, robed in righteousness. But understand it is a righteousness that is given to you when you're born again. In the same way as the only way you're fruitful is by the seal of the Spirit. The only way you're fruitful is by abiding in Jesus. The only way that I am rightly dressed as one who's born again is by faith in him. It is righteousness that is given to me. The wedding clothes are provided. By the way, that was an ancient custom. Oftentimes when a wedding was offered, wedding clothes, invitations were given, there were specific wedding clothes that were available to the guests as they arrived. So born again, will you wear the wedding clothes, the righteous acts of the saints? Isaiah 61, verse 10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. He has clothed me in garments of salvation. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels, will you wear righteousness? Born again ones? This seems to be like this recurring message. I know at least I hear it in my head over and over. You're saved, will you be sanctified? You're born again. Will you put on and wear the righteousness that Jesus bought for you and has provided for you? What does that mean practically? Will you behave as a righteous person? Will you live a holy life? Ah, oh, but I'm imperfect. I understand that. But will you try? Don't try to save yourself. You're already saved. But man, wear what he's given you. Wear righteousness. We gather together to ask the Lord's blessing. He chastens and hastens his will to make known the wicked oppressing now cease from distressing. Sing praises to his name. He forgets not his own. Amen.
Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Lord, it is such a joy to gather with my brothers and sisters, saints of the assembly, and to know, Father, that, that this gathering is, is like, it's like a communion cracker taste of what's coming in eternity of the gathered assembly around the throne, of the gathering of the saints to meet Jesus in the air and forever be with the Lord, of our gathered assembly forever, Lord. What a marvel, what a wonderful thing is out before us. And you call us to this gathering. Father, may nobody be found in our fellowship and in your church without the robe of righteousness that you provide. Help us to pursue righteousness in this life, to live for Jesus, to be a fruitful people, bearing the seal of the Spirit, included in the very lineage of Jesus, by faith having been born again. All these things, Lord, we just pray you would help us to process them and now to live them out. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.